0: Thanks, man. Good morning. You may have a seat, man. You're so faithful. Thank you, man. Y'all, come on, guys. <laughs> uh, man, how are you guys doing? Yeah, enjoying it. Happy birthday, storehouse. Yeah, right, big deal. That's a big man. I want to. I want to touch on that uh, later on in our time today. But man, it has been such a wonderful. Uh, season, uh, so to speak, uh, and for lack of a better word, it has been a wonderful season. We have seen God uh, at work in and through our church. Uh, It has been an incredibly humbling year, but it has also been a very fruitful year, and that is all thanks to to him and his work and the work that he's doing in you. Uh, My name is Marco. I'm the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse Community Church. Thank you guys so much for joining us this Morning. If you're new, if you've been joining us for a couple of weeks, there should be some connect cards on your chairs. Fill one of those bad boys out, turn it in, or or drop it in the offering basket later on this. Uh, I guess later on this morning, uh, drop it in there. We'd love to connect. We'd love to hang out with you uh, and see what you're about so you can see what we're about. Here's what I'm going to do. We're going to be in uh, Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. So if you would like to open or load your Bible, go ahead and do so. Uh, I'm going to ramble for a little bit before we dive into uh, the crux of our time. And so if you've, uh, if you've just been joining us, uh, we started a sermon series about, uh, I don't know, five weeks ago, uh, titled Citizens, uh, a study in the book of Philippians, and it has been Uh, At the very least for me and my wife and our family, it's been an incredible study. Uh, We have seen the Apostle Paul walk through several themes throughout our time in Philippians. And uh, one of the things that we're going to talk about, or or one giant theme that we're going to be looking at this morning, is a theme that he's ultimately been building upon, and it is a theme that he will continue to build upon as we work and walk through Philippians. Philippians. Now, as you're turning there, just a quick update on on where we're headed this summer. So today we finished chapter one of Philippians, and we're going to go ahead and take a break for the summer as we transition into a summer series on the Beatitudes. And so that starts next week. We will jump back into Philippians starting in August and should finish it sometime around October. So that's just a little update on where we're headed with Philippians and uh, where we're headed this summer. Nevertheless, going back to uh, this time, so Paul has been walking us through several themes. Uh, When we first started Philippians, we began to talk About um, who we are in Christ uh, and salvation by grace through faith. That was a a big uh, catalyst for our time in Philippians. Uh, Transitioning from there, we began to learn more about what gospel partnership is and what it means for us to be in unity as a church. The past two weeks, we looked at some uh, deeper, maybe even some darker themes where we walked through suffering and what suffering is and what suffering is not. And then last week, we looked at death and our view of death. And the biggest thing when we uh, looked and walked through death, what was that for the believer, it is merely a vehicle into the presence of Christ. Additionally, when we looked at suffering, the main idea in suffering was that every circumstance we find ourselves in tends to be an opportunity to advance the gospel, because that's exactly what Paul says uh, uh, surrounding his circumstances. He is in a Roman prison in chains, and he finds himself next to an imperial guard, and rather than complaining about the circumstance that he finds himself in, he goes on to say that the circumstance he's actually in is for Christ. His imprisonment is for Christ because it presented him with an opportunity to share the gospel with those who don't know Jesus. And in addition to that, it empowered others who do know Jesus to ultimately be bold in their proclamation of God's Word. Um, And so that's just one giant review of where we have been in Philippians. Today, we're going to be looking at our citizenship. Now, our citizenship has been a theme that Paul has been building upon. It is why we titled this sermon series Citizens, and I want to touch on that in just a little bit. So I'm going to read our text. I'm going to pray for our time, and uh, and then we're just going to jump into this. You can look at it like a 12-point sermon, and some of you might be like, what? 12 points? Yes, I said that. So here we go. This is uh, verse 27, and we're going to go through Verse 30. So three verses today. This is what Paul writes. He says, "...only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents." This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we prepare, not even prepare, but as we walk into to worship you through your preached word. I would ask that you, um, man, set me aside and that it would be the work of your Holy Spirit in and through my brothers and sisters, including those who don't know you right now. Lord, I pray that you would not just reveal yourself to us through your word, but that you would convict us, that you would challenge us, that you would compel us to repent, that you would compel us to uh, be reminded of who you say we are before we focus on what we do. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this season. Um, It has been by your grace uh, that we are here. It has been by your faithfulness that we are here uh, when we were faced with not necessarily or not just opposition but uncertainty and we were kind of tripping out. You were never phased by it. And so we praise you for that and we thank you for your faithfulness. Again, Lord, I pray that you would be glorified in this time. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, here we go. So if, if, if you're new, if you're not, you know I, I love doing this. If you're new, I love lists, man. It, it helps me out. It helps me uh, get things organized, and it helps me go to the very next point. Uh, so if you don't like lists, too bad. I have the mic. And uh, if you do like lists, well, I hope you take notes uh, here we go. So, the first thing that I want to talk about concerning citizenship uh, is, is really an illustration. So, I, I would transition into this time with, with an illustration. So, one of the trips my wife and I really want to take one day is we want to go visit Europe, right? We want to go see a couple of historical places, we want to go do whatever you do in Europe, and, uh, and we want to go check out just a bunch of different countries, right? And uh, Rebecca, who is a uh, hairstylist, she has a ton of clients. Some of those clients aren't even from the States, which is pretty cool. And they will encourage her. They'll give her a couple of tips as we mentally prepare for this trip one day. And one of the tips that was given to her a couple of weeks ago was uh, when we were talking, I think we were talking about England, or they were talking about England. And, um, And her client says, when you go, don't tell them that you're from the United States. Make sure you tell them you're from Texas right? Uh, that's apparently a big difference. And so, um, <laughs> so, so, they, so they said, make sure you tell them you're from, you're from Texas. And I won't necessarily, uh, uh, you know, dwell on the United States part, but I was, it, it, it struck me with great curiosity as to telling other people, man, I'm from Texas. And, and I won't go into those thoughts, but how it relates to our time today, what it helped me understand was, man, who we are is important. Who we are is important because to others, not only are they going to have a perception of what you do and maybe even your beliefs, but they're going to have a perception of your customs. They're going to have a perception of how you conduct yourself. They're going to have a perception of something based on who you are. Now, that alone was a really big, uh, not surprise to me, but it was a great reminder of this echo of the gospel that. The first thing God tells us is who we are. Before he tells us what to do, he tells us who we are. And that's what citizenship is. Citizenship applies or implies a lot of things. One of the things that citizenship applies is responsibility. So as we look at the text, one of the things, or the opening statement that Paul says, is only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. When we look at the words, let your manner of life be worthy, when we look at that, those are what, four or five words? In the Greek translation, it means one word, it means city, and it implies citizenship. It implies responsibility. It implies a privilege a privilege that you have been given, a privilege that demands loyalty. You see, in Paul's day, as he's writing to a Roman colony, they understood this. They understood what citizenship was. It was a part of life. Who they were, who they were defined their social customs, Who they were defined their laws. Who they were defined what kind of belief system they were going to have. Who they were determined their loyalty. Who they were put them on a different class than other people because of how hardcore they were about their identity. And that's ultimately the goal. Oh, that's ultimately the definition of citizenship. It is a privilege that we've been given, but because it is a privilege that we've been given, it doesn't mean you don't do anything with it. Anytime you've been given a privilege, it's going to imply responsibility. It's always going to imply responsibility. And so in this time, what Paul is now getting to is as we've talked about salvation uh, by faith alone, uh, as we've talked about gospel partnership, as we've talked about unity within the church, as we've talked about who we are, this is carrying us on. These are all catalysts to tell you that you are citizens, that you are citizens. Who you are is important and who you are is defined by by what Christ has done. And that's his his ultimate encouragement. Additionally, as we work through this section, I wanted to look at that word worthy. I think when we think about responsibility but we forget privilege, we misunderstand and, with misconception, uh, define improperly the word worthy— When we're looking at the word worthy, one of the things that I just want to put on the table, you know, we we put things on the table, we talk about them, we walk through them. One of the things that I want to put on the table concerning the word worthy is we'll hear about our citizenship, we'll become very proud about our citizenship, and that is very good. That's a good thing that you're proud about your citizenship that is defined by the work of Christ. But it's not because you're worthy of what you've done. It's not because you're worthy of, of how awesome you think you are. When we look at our salvation, the only thing that you and I have contributed to our salvation is our sin. That is what we have contributed to our salvation. And so when we look at the word worthy, or we even think about the word worthy, it should immediately lead us to fix our eyes on Jesus and what Jesus has done, that on the cross He died for sinners, absorbing our sin and giving us His righteousness. It is not a result of the work that you have done, but solely the the work of another. Man, we are citizens because of what Jesus has done. We are completely unworthy, yet he calls us worthy because of the faithfulness and righteousness of another. And I think that's something that we need to hold fast to. That's something that we constantly need to be reminded of because as Christians, we are quick to forget who we are and are even faster to default to who we were. And so that's the ultimate reminder as we start our time when we're looking at citizenship and worth. And I want you to have that at the forefront of your mind because this identity has implications for our activity. And we're going to walk through that, but we're still going to talk a little bit more about identity. So the first one was citizenship. The next one was, was worthy. Paul goes on and says, The manner of life worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you, I'm absent, I may hear that you're standing firm in one spirit and one mind. Here here are four additional things that we can pull from verse 27 because of our citizenship and because of how we define worth. And the next one would be reconciliation. You see, the work of Christ does something huge. The work of Christ now reconciles us to the Father. Reconciled, or reconciliation, is an SAT word for relationship. What he is saying is that Christ's saving work now gives us access and a relationship to the Father. And Christ's saving work gives us a relationship, gives us access to the Father, and it reconciles us to one another. That we are to have a relationship with one another. That we are to be in community and have relationships with one another. And we'll touch on this a little bit more. But reconciliation isn't just something that we do. It's a part of who we are. The fourth thing that we see after reconciliation is standing firm. One of the things Paul tells the church is, man, I want to see you guys standing firm. You can only stand firm if you know what you're standing on, if you know the foundation that you're standing on, and if you know how to stand. So when we look at the foundation, what we believe the foundation of our faith is, is that Jesus is Lord. That is the foundation upon which we stand. The next thing that we need to look at when it comes to standing firm is knowing how to stand If you've ever done any kind of contact sport, one of the first things that coaches often teach on and train their athletes in is how to stand properly so that they can defend their position or so that they can be offensive as they go uh, as they play against the other team. Standing has tons of benefits. Standing firm has tons of benefits. You need to know how you do it. If you stand straight up, your shoulders back, someone can push you over, someone can move you over the side or push you over to the side. One of, the th- one of the drills that I hated when I was in wrestling, uh, but it worked. One of the drills that I did uh, that we would do in wrestling was we had to position our feet in a way that we were standing firm, uh, but it also taught us how to move at different angles in the event that uh, the guy that we were wrestling against or our, our opponent, we can defend ourselves or we can shoot in in between their legs. And it was a drill that we constantly did. And it was just about standing firm so that you can defend yourself or so that that you can be on the attack. The same thing applies to us as Christians. Who we are is important because that's going to shape what we believe. How we think shapes how we believe. And the only way in which we can lock arms is if we are standing firm. Not standing up, but standing firm. The next thing, all of this is tied into one another, so standing firm. The next thing is being of one spirit. What I would say when it comes to one spirit, one of the things that we talked about last week is that for the believer, man, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And so as we stand upon our foundation and as we stand firm on our foundation, when we lock arms, we can be assured that the Holy Spirit is at work in us, standing with us as one spirit. Which leads into the final thing, that we are of one mind. As the Holy Spirit dwells in us, we now have the mind of Christ. That we can now move forward as one. And we're going to have differences. And we're going to look different. Unity doesn't mean uniformity. But the reason in which we lock arms is because we understand, know, and hold fast to the foundation that we stand on. We know how to stand. We know that the Holy Spirit is at work in us, dwelling in us, and that we are of one body, that we move as one. And all of those implications fall under the guise of our identity. Citizenship or worth reconciliation, standing firm, being of one spirit and of one mind. And so what I need you to do in that, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Usually when we walk through teaching, we're looking through, man, implications and application. Implication is like, this is something we need to be reminded of. This is something that we just need to believe. We need to hold fast to. We need to be reminded of. Those six things are things that we need to hold fast to and believe if we are to move forward because they are a part of who we are. So now let's look, at, let's look at application. Let's look at some practical stuff. And this comes as a result of verses 28 through 30. Now, some of these are directly pulled out from verses 28 through 30. Some of them are, man, a result of some of the things Paul says. But in verse 28, I'll read it one more time. Verse 20, says, "'Not be frightened in anything by your opponents. "'This is a clear sign to them of their destruction.'" But of your salvation and that from God, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now uh, and now here that I still have. All right. So we looked at these six uh, implications of who we are. now we're looking at the application of those six things with an additional six. Remember, it's 12 points. All right? Here we go. The first thing is discipleship. I want to talk a little bit about discipleship. Here's how we define discipleship. We define discipleship by meeting people where they're at and taking them to where Jesus wants them to be. That's how we define uh, discipleship. You can get really fancy with that, but uh, we don't want to, right? When it comes to discipleship, specifically within the church— Here, what Paul is talking to, or the people Paul is talking to, is talking to the church in Philippi. So he's addressing the Christians. And so as we were just reminded about who we are because of the work of Christ, now he's talking about what we do. And one of the things that we do is that we disciple one another, not just me to you, but we disciple one another, right? Reminding each other of the work of Christ, speaking the gospel into one another's lives, so that we would grow in our maturity, so that we would grow into the fullness of Christ, so that we would point one another back to Jesus, so that we would encourage one another to fix our eyes upon Jesus. As a church, one of the things that we are called to is discipling one another. It leads into the eighth thing. All again, all of these are just one one after another. As we disciple one another, we empower one another. We looked at empowerment a couple of weeks ago when we talked about suffering. That how you respond to your suffering is going to empower other Christians because other Christians are watching how you respond. And it just doesn't have to be in the context of suffering. But other Christians are watching how you respond, how you worship so that they would be empowered. So that through you, God, God would be at work in them to mature them, to help them grow in their unity, to help them grow into the fullness of Christ. That is a part of discipleship. It is a part of our life as a Christian. Discipleship also isn't an amazing event, discipleship happens in the ordinary and in the mundane. oftentimes when we look at discipleship and empowering one another, one of the pushbacks from the church, and not just us, but one of the pushbacks from the church is that I don't have time. Here's here's what I am asking you to do when it comes to discipling one another. I'm not asking you to put more on your schedule. I'm asking you to include others with what you're already doing. You feel me on that? So when you go grocery shopping, take someone with you Go teach them how to budget, right? If you're going to go take care of chores, bring them with you. My wife and I have brought people into our home who did not know how to do laundry. So on laundry day, I brought them and I showed them how to fold and do the laundry. We are to disciple one another, not just in practical application, but in our speaking the gospel to one another, reminding us of who we are. So I'm not asking you to do more. I'm asking you to be intentional with what you already have on your plate. Because we could all do that. We could all include others. Just don't want to. Number nine, unity. This is a big one. This is a really big one. Because Paul says there's a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. Here's, here's, here's what we're looking at when we're talking about unity. When the church comes together and we are locked in arms, standing on the foundation of the gospel in one spirit and one mind, it represents unity. But it doesn't just represent unity with one another, right? You see, when everybody is striving together for the gospel, it's a sign and a reminder to each one of us that we have been saved by grace. It's a reminder that we are citizens of heaven, that we are together in the kingdom, And that is also recognizable to those who do not know Jesus. Ephesians 3 says that Christ chose to use the church to reveal Himself to those who don't know Him. So when we unite together as a church, standing firm on the foundation of the gospel, it isn't just a reminder for you and I to, be, to remember that we have been saved by grace, but it is also a reflection of the person and work of Jesus, that the role of the church is to point others to Jesus so that others would come to know Jesus. That is the role of the church. And that's what happens in unity. The individual cannot accomplish unity apart from the body. The individual cannot accomplish unity apart from the body. You don't get Jesus without his church. It's one way of saying it. You don't get Jesus without his church. Ephesians 5 says that he is the groom, that the church is the bride. It would be like uh, if somebody comes up to me, I've I've given this before, somebody comes up to me and says, man, I really like hanging with you. I really enjoy you, Marco. I just don't really like or care for your wife. Then you and I don't get to hang out. Okay? You don't get Jesus without his church. And one of the things I hear from Christians, I think, one of the things I hear is, man, I love Jesus, I just don't love his church. I should say one of the things I hear from people is that. I love Jesus, or I want to love Jesus, I like Jesus, I just don't like his church. Then you don't know Jesus. Then you don't know Jesus. Likewise, I've heard people in the church, and I get what they're saying. So I'll, I'll touch on that. I get what they're saying. I've heard people in the, ch- in the church say, I don't have faith in man. I just have faith in God. And I get what they're saying because on paper, yeah, okay, you're, you're, you're sound. I get that, right? Our faith is to be in the person and work of Jesus, right? Because you and I, we're going to fail one another. Again, on paper and on the whiteboard, you know, E for effort. Cool, What they really mean at that point is that they want to separate themselves from the body of Christ. That's what they mean when they say that. But we mask it with Christianese. You don't get the body apart from Jesus. And then for those who maybe don't know Jesus or even those who struggle with the church, you'll say, man, Christians are weird. Christians are broken. Christians are just strange. The church is a weird place. I don't know how it works. Uh, Man, there's tons of hypocrisy that happens in the church. Again, broken people. And what I would submit to you is that you're the same. Is that you're the same. That's what I would submit to you. That the message of the gospel isn't about people who have become perfect. The message of the gospel is about this perfect Savior who entered into human history to rescue broken people and make them new. Not better, but make them new. By redeeming them and transforming their lives. Additionally, that doesn't mean that he's done with those people. Man, we're celebrating one year, and we're going to walk through a lot of things that God has blessed us with, and that is awesome. And he is still not finished. We've made it to a year. That's awesome. Praise God. That doesn't mean we stop. That doesn't mean growth stops. That doesn't mean we've achieved maturity. That doesn't mean we've achieved fullness in Christ. There is still a lot of work to be done in us. There is still sin to repent of. There are still people who need to hear about Jesus. That's unity. Number 10, we look at suffering. Paul goes on to say that it has been granted to you for the sake uh, sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for him. Check it. He said it has been granted to you that you would not just believe. A lot of people will say, yeah, I believe in God. But here, one of the things that Paul says is, a gift that you receive is suffering as a result of your belief. When we look at the word belief, it means that we come under submission of that belief system, and a gift is suffering. Like, wait, whoa, I don't know about that. I was with you, maybe, on some of those things. Now we're talking about suffering. So, if you want to know more about it, two weeks ago, that's all we talked about. Here's what I will touch on regarding suffering. Number one, maybe five things. Number one, Peter says, don't be surprised when trials happen. And I love what he's saying because I think he's being sarcastic. What you saying, like, w- w- one of the things that he says is, don't be surprised and ask, God, why is this happening? He's encouraging the Christians, right? So suffering will come. But suffering for the believer is not punishment. If you view suffering as punishment, then it's an improper and immature understanding of the work of the cross. He's already taken your punishment on the cross. That God the Father poured his wrath onto the Son, the punishment has already been paid your debt has been paid. And in fact, miraculously and graciously, not only has he paid your debt, he has given you his credit. It is not punishment. The next thing that suffering is is that it should be, it's that it's purposeful. Suffering is purposeful. We touched on this a little bit earlier. It's purposeful in the sense that it's an opportunity to advance the gospel. To share the gospel with those who don't know Jesus. It's an opportunity to empower others who are weak in their faith because they're watching you respond. They're watching you respond. And number three, well, maybe it was four things. <laughs> Sorry. Series. It's corrective. Suffering is corrective. That God allows suffering as discipline. He allows suffering as discipline in order to align us back to where we ought to be. It's not because he doesn't love us. It's because he does love us. He already has loved us. He has loved us so much that he has sent his son to die for sinners. And when he disciplines us, he disciplines us as a good father does. Oftentimes in Seasons of suffering, seasons of trial. Man, we cry so loud for God to change our circumstance. But we never cry or we don't cry as often for God to change our hearts. To change the condition of our hearts. Because our hearts have become hardened. Our hearts have become selfish. Our hearts have become distant from God. And all we can scream is change my circumstance as opposed to change me and the condition of my heart. So suffering. And it is a gift of grace. Think about it. If we were to remove our eyes from our circumstance and place our eyes on the gospel and beg and plea with God to change our heart, to be at work in our heart, and as he does it through the power of his Holy Spirit, isn't that a gift of his grace? that you become more and more like Jesus. Closing it off. Uh, number 11, combating division. Now, this, these last two, combating div, uh, division and, uh, and, and number 12, the advancing of the gospel, these are uh, kind of like results. So if we're discipling one another and empowering one another and striving in unity, suffering among one another, one of the things that we ought to do is to combat Division. That we are to combat division. Remember, unity doesn't mean uniformity. We're going to look different, okay? Some of you don't wear converse and you should. That's all I'm saying, (laughs) right? So we combat division. When we're looking at combating division, Paul calls the word of God the sword of the spirit. The sword of the spirit is so that we would be not just on the defense, but so that we would be on the offense. We are to stab the enemy, not stab one another. We are to stand with one another, not stab one another. And we must combat division, but you can only combat it if you know where you're standing. And it's not just theological, though it is important. It's also relational because it's specifically within the church where we take the word of God and stab one another with it for our own gain, for our own personal understanding, so that we can justify our behavior and our conduct and further distance ourselves from one another, which further distances us from God. And you just put a bow around it and you add some Christianese to it and you call it holy and you tell people to pray for you. And you do it in community group when you guys are praying with one another. All right, great. You masked it. We have masked it. Instead of admitting that we use the sword of the Spirit to stab one another, instead of standing with one another. As a church, we're called to combat division. Again, relationally, that's super important. Theologically, it's just as important. What you believe shapes how you live. And finally, number 12, as we're working through all these, as we disciple one another, empower one another, stand in unity, strive in unity, suffer, combat, division, what happens? The gospel is advanced. But the gospel just isn't advanced inside the walls of the incubator. The gospel is advanced on the other side, within our community and in our city. Right within our community, within our city. Because people are watching that Christ chose to use the church to reveal himself to those who don't know him. We have purposely taken 12 months to grow relationally, to heal, and to mature. But we're not done. Christ isn't finished. But it is a great value in our church. Relationships, it's a great value in our church. And they are opportunities within our church. And so as we continue to mature after this one year, as we continue to grow relationally, as we continue to mature, it's not going to just stay in here. We are called to make disciples. To go out into our city, to go out into our community, to declare and demonstrate the gospel to those who don't know Jesus. And so that's where we're headed. And I know it makes people nervous. We're starting with the city of heroes that Nano told you about. I know it makes people nervous, and I get that. But the work of Christ, the reminder here is that the work of Christ brings redemption to broken people making them citizens of his eternal kingdom for the glory of his name. And as a result, our desire should be to see men and women convicted of their sin, drawn to Jesus, and redeemed. And so it starts with us first. Let's pray. Lord, uh, there are a lot of things that, that Paul says that we, uh, that we are so quick to forget. There are a lot of things that Paul says that we are so quick to forget uh, because we quickly default to who we were and forget who you say we are. It's very, to e- it's very easy to forget the work of Christ for us, the work of Christ in us, and the work of Christ through us. And as a result, Lord, would you forgive us? Would you forgive us of that? Would you forgive us of that and lead us through your spirit to fix our eyes upon Jesus? Lord, we thank you for these past 12 months. We're looking forward to the next 12. And we are also looking forward to the continued work that you are doing in us. So that we would strive side by side in one spirit, in one body. Not stabbing one another, but standing with one another. Not ripping one another apart, but challenging one another to love and good works. Not forgetting about one another, but empowering one another as we disciple one another to fix our eyes on Jesus, to communicate and preach the gospel to one another, to be reminded of who you say we are, to be reminded of our citizenship, to be reminded that our time here is merely a residency, to be reminded that you are not done, to be reminded that all of this is for your glory, to be reminded that all of this is is for your glory and for our good. Lord, as we transition into a time of tithes and offerings, Lord, this is where we give you our stuff. May this be a time of of worship. For us, where we uh, relinquish the control we think we have, where we unclench our fists, where we very quickly are reminded of who we are. And one of the things that we are to do isn't just to give, but it's to give because you have given all. You have displayed the ultimate sacrifice and generosity on the cross through your Son. So may we do the same with our stuff so that we'll, we won't be tied down by it, but that we would be tied down by your gospel. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.